you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see, what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you've proved yourself innocent in this matter. So, although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we're comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God, let's pray. Father, as we come as one big gathered family, we thank you for bringing us together and we ask, would you give us faith like a child to hear your word, to receive it, to believe it and to respond to it so that you would get all of the glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said together, 
Amen. Well, it's great to be with you. A special welcome to you if you are a younger person. Uh, normally in City Kids, once a month we get together as an intergenerational service, which is a great thing because we really want to be the kind of church that gathers together, all together, regularly. Now, there's a few good reasons to do this once a month. One is our City Kids leaders do a fantastic job. And so we want to give them a break every now and then just to love them well and support them. And so if you are a City Kids leader in the room, I want to encourage you, can we thank the City Kids leaders because they just do an incredible, incredible job every week. And so uh, it's great to have you with us in the big church uh, this week. Uh, But the, the other reason we do it once a month, and probably the more important reason, is there's a deep conviction here that we really want to be an intergenerational church. We want um, to be... Wait, Dave, 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 um, excuse me. Hey, Charlie. Hey, everyone, this is Charlie, my friend. Charlie, say hi to everybody. Hi! Everyone, say hi to Charlie. Charlie, great to see you. What can I help you with? Well, um, I had a question. Go for it. That word you just used, the in the generational? Intergenerational, you mean? Oh, oh, intergenerational. What's that? Great question, Charlie. Well, what do you think it means? Well, it sounds like you want to be a church with lots of generations, like good mix of young people and middle-aged people and old people, like you. Kind of. Uh, That's almost it, Charlie. Actually, intergenerational means that, but it, it means more than that. Being an intergenerational church means we want to have all the generations together, but then... We want everyone to do ministry to one another, to listen to and learn from and encourage and grow each other. So, so Jesus said we want to receive the kingdom of God like a child. And I take it that means the kids have something to teach us as grown-ups, just like we have something to teach them about what it means to follow Jesus well. So, so as a church, we want to take time to do that regularly and make sure that we're using all the gifts of the church, not just the grown-up ones, to see all of us grow up towards Christ-likeness. That's, that's kind of what intergenerational means. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, that sounds cool and all, but I don't know why you didn't just say that instead of using some big, fancy word you learned at Bible college. That's great feedback, Charlie. Thank you. Um, Well, actually, I have been told before uh, that I have a problem. So I was wondering if you might be able to help me with this sermon. Sure. Let me guess. You want me to make sure that all your analogies aren't just some middle-aged things like lawn mowing and test cricket and getting up in the night to use the bathroom. Well, I am hoping that all the analogies are relatable to everybody, but, but I was actually hoping that you might be able to help me with some of the longer words. See, I've been told that I do have a tendency to be a little bit verbose sometimes, and so if any words don't make sense to you, just stop me, interrupt, and we'll slow down to explain them. How does that sound? That sounds good. Fantastic. Hey, Dave. Yes? You just said the word verbose. Do you even know what the word verbose means? It means someone who uses lots of big words. Correct. You see where I'm going with this? I think I get the hint. Good man. All right. Thanks, Charlie. Um, yeah. Let me know if you... No, I'll see you soon. Because um, I know that you'll be saying more things like this again shortly. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll look forward to that. Okay. See Bye. you soon, Charlie. Bye, Charlie. Bye. What could possibly go wrong, hey? 2 Corinthians chapter 7. That's where we are. And uh, to navigate this chapter, we've got two headings to help us work our way through it. The first one is this joy, 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 joy down in Paul's heart. 
Now, I've got the great privilege of being the youth minister here, which means I have a front row seat to what it means to be an intergenerational church a whole lot of times. I am learning so much from the teenagers of our church. I'm learning so much about what it means to rejoice because they're just better at that than I am so often. And and I'm learning so much about courage as well because they go out onto the front lines of life every day willing to share the gospel in a way that I am only dreaming of. And so I'm praying I'd become more like them in my courage and my boldness and my excitement and enthusiasm. I'm just learning heaps of really important stuff from the young people about how to follow Jesus. And I'm also learning heaps of really unimportant stuff too. See, I've learned recently that this is, and I quote, abysmal as a dance move for a 32-year-old person to attempt. Not on, not okay. But one of the other things I'm learning is a whole bunch of new phrases And the most recent phrase I learned from the teenagers of our church is left on red. Left on red. Now, being left on red is that awful experience that lots of us will know when you send a message to somebody and you get the little notification saying that they've read it and then nothing. They just leave it there. You've sent them a message, maybe you've poured out your heart, maybe you've asked them a question, maybe you confessed your love and you're feeling vulnerable and you know they've seen it, and you get nothing but the digital silent treatment in return. And being left on red is just a gross feeling. It makes your stomach turn inside of you, doesn't it? And we start there because that's kind of how Paul is feeling by the time we open 2 Corinthians. See, in his own first century way, Paul has been left on red by the Corinthian church. He's written them a couple of different letters. One of them is 1 Corinthians, and then somewhere he's written another one. It's been lost to history, and and so we don't know exactly what it says, but we do know how it left Paul feeling when he wrote it. In 2 Corinthians 2, verse 4, he says, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. And you can just hear his vulnerability jumping off the page, that the letter has really left him feeling open, wondering how they've responded, anxious to hear how they've received it. And then in chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, Paul gets his answer. We read of the moment Paul is put out of his misery because he bumps into his old friend Titus, who's just been in Corinth. And the anxious wait to see how Paul's letter was received is over because Titus comes to Paul and says, Paul, I've got some good news. Verse 6 of chapter 7, But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. He's wondering how the letter was received, and now he knows. And he should be comforted. He can rejoice, we see in verse 7, in the response that the Corinthians had to his letter. And actually, as you look through this passage, rejoicing is kind of a big thing. Paul doesn't just rejoice in verse 7, he's rejoicing in verse 4. And again in verse 9, and again in verse 13, and and again in verse 16 as well. In fact, we'd have to say that joy is everywhere in this passage. It is the predominant emotion 
that Paul is feeling that runs all the way through the chapter, so much so that the heading in my ESV Bible is Paul's joy. And we need to catch that. We have to understand that before we go any further, because if we miss it, we're going to misunderstand everything that comes next. But if we see that, the rest of the chapter begins to open up. So Paul is joyful. We want to file that away because we'll need it later. Paul is joyful, but the first question is, why is he so joyful? Well, the answer is because of their grief. Paul is joyful because of the Corinthians' grief. Whatever he wrote to them caused the Corinthians to grieve, and he's so glad that that's the case because there is such a thing as good grief. That's our second heading. We'll spend most of our time here looking at this idea of good grief. So Paul knows that he's grieved the Corinthians with this letter, whatever it says, and he doesn't feel that bad about it. What he's probably done is written to them about their sin and a way they need to change, and he doesn't feel bad that he's grieved them with that, at least not anymore. As we see in verse 8, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice. There's that word rejoice again. Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. So you see what's happening? Paul rejoices, not just because of their grief, but because it was a particular kind of grief, godly grief. It's a good grief. So the question is, what makes this good grief good? What, what would lead from grief to rejoicing? And the answer's there in verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. What makes good grief good? Well, it's all about repentance. Hey, Dave. Hey, Charlie. Sorry to interrupt, Go for but it. I have to ask, what's repentance? That's a great question, Charlie, and I'm so glad you asked. Repentance is a word that basically just means turning. Oh, so like this? Blah! Kind of, kind of, but, but when the Bible uses the word, uh, it's talking about turning from something and to something. Oh, so if I were to do this, I'd be repenting from Dave and repenting to morning tea. You've got it. Yeah, that's exactly how the word works. But in the Bible, it's helpful to know that you don't usually repent towards morning tea. Uh, you're normally repenting from sin and repenting to God. Like, when I stop doing something God doesn't like and pray to him asking for forgiveness. Exactly like that. Oh, thanks, Dave. That's actually helpful. No worries. I'm so glad it was helpful. See you again soon. I'm looking forward to it. Now, you maybe knew what repentance meant already, or maybe you're particularly glad for Charlie, because we've just defined the word. But, but the question I want to ask all of us about repentance is, how does the word make you feel? What kind of emotional space did this idea of repentance take you to? Because the word repent feels to me like it should be shouted at me. Like often it's supposed to take me to a world of fire and 
brimstone and, and death, maybe? <laughs> that, that, that my emotional space, maybe it's yours too, that the idea of repentance leads me quickly towards not just a helplessness, but, but a worthlessness. A, a feeling of guilt and dirt. And so when you hear someone say something which is true, like the Christian life is a life of repentance, part of you knows that's true and part of you thinks, that sounds gross. I I don't think I want that. Well, if you're anything like me, it's worth teasing out the logic of this passage a little bit more because I'm convinced that's not how repentance feels for Paul. It's not how it feels for the Corinthian church and it's not how it should feel for us either. Look at verse 10 again. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So so we notice two kinds of grief here. There's a, a worldly grief and a godly grief. And we're told a little bit about the differences. The only thing we're really told about this worldly grief is that it leads to death. But you can start to imagine what Paul has in mind, can't you? This is the kind of grief that is not life-giving. This grief is a dead end for you. It's the kind of grief that causes you to turn in on yourself, in self-pity and self-despair and self-disgust. It's the kind of grief that leads you to shut down and then shut yourself off from everyone else. It's a dead-end kind of grief, this worldly grief. On the other hand, there's a godly grief here. And it's different. It's still grief. There is still a sense of sadness. There is still a sense of... but it doesn't stay there. Did you notice that? This grief leads to other things. This grief involves repentance, a turning from and a turning to. Look at verse 11 with me. See what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in this matter. Two things to notice in verse 11. The first one is what this kind of grief does. It does not cause you to shut down and shut yourself off. Now, it leads to a spiritual vigor and vitality. If anything, earnestness and and eagerness, a zeal, an indignation, a longing. But it's not just what this grief does. Look at where this grief ends in verse 11. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So confident is Paul in the gospel of Jesus that he can say, by repenting, you prove yourself innocent. Which is not to say, by repenting, you make yourself innocent. But by repenting, you show yourself to be innocent. In other words, 
you don't carry guilt anymore. You've been unburdened. You're free and forgiven. This is what he's talking about when he talks about salvation without regret. And this is why the main emotion of this passage is joy. You could start to see why this kind of grief might lead to joy when you understand that the journey through repentance leads you to know and to experience again and again that you've been made innocent by Jesus. You are forgiven and free. And you'll feel grief, but the grief doesn't last because the guilt is not yours anymore. Someone's taken it away from you. Someone's taken it for you. So my question is, how do I repent like that? I, I understand what it feels like to be grieved by my sin, right? That's a familiar feeling, but, but how can I repent in such a way that leads me to joy? Well, I think I'm understanding it right when, when we go back to what Charlie and I just discussed. That repentance is a turning from and a turning to. And we can't ever forget that. We can't separate those things out because, because to experience this kind of repentance that leads to joy, it's more than just turning from. It's all about who you turn to. And when we forget that, we start to think too much about our technique for turning. What prayers must I pray? What words must I use? How many times must I say or do these things to prove myself a repenter? That's missing the point. Yes, we turn away but it's just as much about who we turn to because it's in the person we turn to that we find forgiveness, not in our technique for turning. And so my question for you is, when you're faced with grief about your own sin, who are you turning to? Perhaps you're prone to turn in on yourself, to shut yourself down and shut yourself off from the world, or maybe you do turn towards God, but, but even then, I want to ask, what's that God like? When you turn to him, what do you imagine his facial expression to be as you repent from your sin? Well, we don't have to guess, because God has made himself known in Jesus. And Jesus told us a story, a few stories, actually, in Luke chapter 15. God says that he is like a shepherd, who when he notices that one of his sheep is missing, folds his arms and says, that's it. I've had it with that sheep. It's quite enough from them. I've warned them again and again and again. I'm fed up. There are no more chances left. No. God is like a shepherd who, who when he notices that just one of his sheep is missing, 
leaves the rest behind to go and search for that which was lost. And when he finds it, he tells it off. A slap on the wrist, one final warning, conditions upon reacceptance into the... No! When he finds that which was lost, he gathers it up into his arms. And he carries it on his shoulders and he brings it home rejoicing. That's what God is like. God is like the woman who, who loses a coin and when she finds it, she rejoices. Outwardly, she invites the whole neighborhood over for a party because she has found that which was lost. God is like the father who, who watches his own son reject him turn away from him and walk away. But when that path inevitably leads the son to grief and the lost little boy turns, the father runs out to meet him. If you know the story of the two sons, you'll know that the lost younger son even tries to practice his technique for turning. He starts to rehearse his speech to his father. Father, I've let you down. Let me work for it. Let me become one of your servants. Let me earn my way back in. And the father doesn't even let him finish the sentence before he runs to him and gathers him up in his arms. He puts a cloak on him, puts a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and throws a party that lasts for days because that which was lost has been found. His son has turned and that's worth celebrating. This is a father who rejoices in the turning. God is like the father who, when his older son doesn't quite catch the vision, when his older son is suspicious and, and says, no, that, that can't be how this works. That can't be fair. God is like the father who goes out to him as well and who gently invites him, come and party. Come and rejoice, come and dance, come and, come and eat because when lost things are found and when people turn, all of heaven celebrates. That's what God is like. That's who you turn to in your grief. The God who loves you. The God who welcomes you. The God who is glad to see you. It's good news, isn't it? That he's not like your landlord, who you hope leaves you alone, and when you do something wrong, they get up in your face. God's not like the school principal waiting for you to be sent to their office and prove that you're worthy of being sent back into the flock. No, God is like the God of Luke 15. A God who's glad to see you when you turn. And so we turn. 
we do turn away from sin. We, we fight against sin as his people, don't we? With all of the effort and all of the energy and all the help we can find from our brothers and sisters together, we turn away from that. But if you think that repentance is only about what you turn away from, you just won't do it. Because there's no joy in that. That's a works-based salvation. If repentance is about what you turn from and who you turn to, then you start to find joy. Not in your technique, but in the God who loves you. In the God who forgives and welcomes you. Christian repentance, at its heart, is more than just a turning from, or even a turning to. Christian repentance is an invitation to come home. To a father who cares for you and longs to welcome you in. That's how grief becomes joy. It's because of who God is, because of what He is like. And so, if you find yourself needing to turn away from something, especially if you find yourself caught in a habit or a cycle or an addiction of sin, Keep coming home. Don't ever stop coming home. Because God will never stop welcoming you. God will never stop being that kind of father, that kind of shepherd. So keep coming home. Allow your grief at sin to be a reminder that sin is awful. But the love of God is greater. And come home. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are like this. That through Jesus' death on the cross for our sake, in our place, we learn what you're like. We learn that you want us to come home to you. We learn that we are innocent and forgiven and not guilty anymore. And so we pray, would you help us turn? Would you bring us from grief to joy again and again for the glory of your Son? Amen. Well, thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.